Instead, the baby was named William. This happened in Jamestown, when he was baptized into the Church of England, which at the time prohibited the enslavement of Christians. Like other first Africans to dwell in mainland North America, and like many pauper Europeans, William's parents were not slaves, but indentured servants. They were not owned, but rather had to work without wages for a specific number of years for a particular person. Isabel and Antony worked for Captain William Tucker of Elizabeth City, Virginia. At the end of their indenture, the couple was free to start a life of their own. They may have been aided in their new life with freedom dues, homespun clothes or cloth, corn, and a little cash. William's father did eventually own land, which young William would have helped clear and tend. What exactly William grew up to do for a living is unknown, but he did have children. So this first African born in mainland North America was a witness, along with his offspring, of the beginning of the embrace of black slave labor by many of the English, Germans, Scots, Irish, Dutch, and other people intent on prospering by any means necessary in what would one day be the United States. Keeping black slaves was cheaper in the long run than having indentured servants and less troublesome than enslaving the Powhatan, Tuscarora, Yamasee, and other native peoples who, for one, knew the land and could, therefore, more easily escape. Thus, Colony after colony, Massachusetts in 1641, Williams, Virginia in 1661, legalized and encouraged the enslavement of blacks for the duration of their lives, or durante vita, as some documents put it. Georgia was the last of Great Britain's North American colonies to say yes to slavery in 1750. By then, Virginia alone was importing upwards of 1,000 Africans annually, and it was no longer forbidden to enslave black Christians. What's more, given the increase in white men siring children with black women, to curb black freedom by birthright, the status of a black child no longer flowed from the father, as with a white child, but from the mother. By the mid-18th century, the territory that became the Thirteen Colonies, a crazy quilt of laws, customs, and cultures, had a population of a little more than one million, with about 240,000 of the people in bondage. Only a small percent of the enslaved were children under the age of ten, and the conditions under which they lived varied. A child purchased into a family with few or no other slaves might not fare too badly, might even be treated like family. However, one born into such a household might be an unplanned expense for the owner, one too many mouths to feed. Such unwanted babies were often sold, sometimes for a song, or, as a colonial would say, for a pistarine. Some children did not even cost that. Owners of large plantations and other businesses generally needed ready labor. The purchase of adult slaves, mostly men, 
was their first priority. When they did buy a child, often he or she was a gift to a white child. Such was on the mind of Robert Carter, a Virginian who at one point owned more than 700 people. When in 1728 he laid plans to buy three girls, one for each of his young grandsons. It would be like wealthy youngsters today getting an extravagant gift, a BMW car, for instance, explains historian Philip D. Morgan. An insignia of affluence, gentlemanly status. Training a child for life as a gentleman's valet or lady's maid was sometimes the purpose of such a purchase. This was, presumably, the case with the ten-year-old boy and twelve-year-old girl who were the personal servants of George Washington's stepchildren, Jackie and Patsy.